Welcome to Making Connections, a WMNT series on diversifying our future. Welcome to this episode of Mountain Talk Monday. I'm host Kelly Haywood. In this hour, you will hear the presentation of five students of the Masters of Urban and Environmental Planning program at the University of Virginia. Kevin Frazier, Marley Green, Katherine Hindley, Martha Morris, and Susan Rue created a report assessing the existing conditions of the coalfields Appalachian town of Whitesburg, Kentucky. In order for Whitesburg to possibly participate in the Environmental Law Institute's BRIGHT program to bring reinvestment and revitalization to downtown. What we're going to do is our agenda, but basically to introduce the project, talk about our process with the report, and then we're going to talk about we've, we've broken up the sort of downtown corridor um, into four sections or through three geographic sections and then two sort of thematic sections. So um, downtown, the river, um, the riverfront, the trail, and then brownfield sites, and then community engagement opportunities. And so what we're thinking is we're going to go through each one and present sort of our analysis, what we saw as we were looking at these different sections, <coughs> some of the recommendations that we have for Whitesburg to pursue for redevelopment options um, within each of those sections look at a sort of alternatives analysis platform that we, we came up with and, and that we think can be a useful tool for sort of prioritizing what projects Appleshop or Whitesburg might, might go for, and then to do a Q&A discussion for each of those sections. Um, and then we'll wrap up with a little bit of facilitated discussion um, and talk about next steps. So Appleshop and the ARCs were both created in the, in the time of kind of war on poverty. You know, I think ARC has always been a little bit problematic, but also focused on economic <coughs> development, whereas Apple Shop, historically, sort of about art, arts and culture, and thinking about, in recent years, Apple Shop moving more into this direction of how to support community economic development, um, and that maybe the Bright program, this project, uh, can help in that move into more explicit sort of community economic development connections with cultural work. For those of you who don't know, this is under the auspices, this project's done under the auspices of the Bright Program, so that's the Environmental Law Institute, created this program for blight revitalization initiative for green healthy towns. So this is a, a program where Bright, where ELI is trying to support, especially environmental justice communities, in revitalizing areas that have brownfields, that have environmental deterioration, and you know, sort of other economic conditions that are common across environmental justice communities. They're mostly working with communities that are more urban than Whitesburg, but they wanted to work also in a, in a rural spot. Uh, and I think sort of reached out to Apple Shop to talk about how they could work together. And the idea, right, is, is their focus has been redeveloping brownfield sites. And so these are sites of old industrial contamination and working with, with EPA and other federal agencies to sort of remediate those sites and, and turn them back into positive parts of the landscape, but often those redevelopment projects are done sort of parcel by parcel, and so maybe you have, you have several brownfield sites within, within an area, but the sort of revitalization and the improvement of the site is only done with that one parcel in mind, and Eli is trying to work with communities to do whole corridors and to think about whole, whole geographic corridors that contain brownfield sites and how to redevelop them with a plan and sort of the whole context in mind. 
we had to start by selecting a corridor. So Bright is really about this idea of, of a corridor and capturing all of the brownfield sites and, and environmental problem sites and coming up with ways to improve them within a corridor. And so we came down to this mile and a half, a little under two mile corridor. It's not the whole town, but it's, it's a lot of the city of Whitesburg. And we broke that down into three sections. We've got the trail. As you all know, the sort of existing footpath and trail uh, is paved sort of west of downtown. But east is just the old rail bed, largely unimproved. Wanted to look at that and opportunities for redevelopment along the trail corridor. Look at downtown um, and opportunities for, for attracting investment downtown, for ways that sort of policies um, could be used to improve um, the economic sort of vitality and quality of life downtown. And then we looked at the river and ways that we could improve spots along the river, look at the river as a, as a whole, and ways that low-cost improvements could be made that would improve the, the quality of the water and increase sort of interaction ability for, so we can sort of interact with the river uh, in ways that maybe they don't want to or can't right now. Talk about our, our sort of analysis techniques as we go along. And then we decided to focus on a few catalyst sites and focus areas within each section to talk about really concrete things that could be done at each of these catalyst sites. As we go through each section, we'll talk about these catalyst sites and then sort of the outcomes of, of, our, of our process here are um, a set of community engagement processes that could be used to implement some of the recommendations and, and development opportunities that we highlighted. This digital database that I was talking about, 12, 10, 12 gigs worth of data, um, and then a sort of set of a lot of different strategies and, and potential recommendation or recommendations of potential sort of developments ranging from very low-hanging fruit to much more expensive and long-term projects that could be uh, implemented within the corridor to sort of pursue the revitalization that Bright is talking about. We initially we started with six focus areas, and then we, we brought that down to three catalyst areas. We ended up going with the West End parking lot, the West Main parking lot, so that's number one on the far left, with the building at Jenkins Road. That's behind ACLC, so the you know that's like a um, the number one is that parking lot at the very end of Main Street that sometimes community college students park in, mm-hmm. not use that much. And then number three is right behind ACLC, that building, the old Adelphia building. Yeah. So Catalyst One, Catalyst Site One is the West End <coughs> parking lot. Then we go to the Jenkins Road site, sort of combined five and six up there. So that's um, Apple Shops property and sort of moving down towards. Uh, under the underpass. Like if you walk, if you, if you're walking from Apple Shop to Upper Bottom on the old railroad bed where there's graffiti and stuff under that bridge, that area that gets all swampy. Yeah. So that's our third sort of catalyst site that we focus, we bring these focus areas down to. So I'm going to kick it over to Catherine. All right. We looked a bit at the downtown, which um, is a beautiful downtown, really nice historic architecture and a really distinct sense of place already. But there are some things, some resources that we found that could kind of help strengthen that sense of place. So one great thing that's already in place is that it's a National Register Historic District, and it's also registered under the Kentucky um, Heritage Council. So that comes with great tax benefits to help support rehabilitation of properties. Um, The zoning supports mixed use, so they're both zoned commercially, um, so you can have residential and commercial functions there, uh, which is really good for business development. And um, there's a great connection to the walking trail, 
because the walking trail does go through part of downtown. So some of the challenges are just that renovating old buildings is really expensive. <laughs> There's pretty low level of walkability because um, some of the sidewalks are disconnected or have some kind of structural issues. And then competition with commercial centers outside where rehabilitating buildings is less expensive. <coughs> so opportunities are to use the, the historic properties and those tax credits to good use and um, enhance the connections between downtown and the river. Another way that um, downtown is distinct is that it, it does have those connections to the river. And so kind of capitalizing on that would be a great way to draw people in. And then just using grants from on the federal, state, local levels to support business development. So the first thing we wanted to do was the historic preservation resources were already digitized but kind of hard to access. Um, so creating a, a database that's accessible online with all those addresses and um, the specific benefits that you can get from the historic registered districts. Through the National Register Historic District, um, property owners can get a 20% tax credit if the building is, is going to be used for a commercial, um, agricultural, there are a bunch of uses, but it can't be purely residential. So it has to be for some economic function. But that can be really helpful. In our GIS database, we have a layer with the historic properties on it, which, which we will recommend to be online so that it's easy for people to find it. So there are a few vacant buildings like this one that are also historic properties, um, and I think that's a great opportunity to leverage those tax credits. Um, but also something that can be done in the short term is a historical vacant building tour, which we saw um, in this town called Wilkinsburg, Pennsylvania, where um, basically local residents came and created a narrative around the historic buildings and took people through them and explained how they're significant um, to the history of the town. It's, I think it would be a really interesting way to get people engaged in the history and in rehabilitating the buildings. And like with the, the national and state tax credits, you can, you can use both of them at the same time. So it's eventually going to be more than 20% tax credit if you factor in the state ones. So we talked to a couple of business owners, and one of the things that they said is that um, it's pretty hard to access resources for like learning how to get development permits or connect to water and sewer. Um, and so consolidating all of, the, all of those resources online where they're easily accessible to people, both in Whitesburg and maybe people who want to move here and open a business, would be really helpful. We started compiling those resources and should consider maybe the Whitesburg City website, but we're not sure exactly how that would work. There are a few vacant buildings, but and there are some suggestions for vacant building policies, but they do involve kind of more government intervention, like increasing the tax rate on vacant buildings and creating a fee structure. So maybe that would be appropriate in some circumstances, but it's not, um, it would be something that would require a lot of debate and discussion, I think, before any um, conclusion is made. And then, yeah, <laughs> that would be a kind of longer process, but in the report we do have kind of an explanation of each of these policies, which would address the vacant building issue, but not necessarily um, the best way to do it. The last one is just kind of back to the theme of increasing resources. So there are a lot of resources out there for loans and grants for rehabilitating buildings, but um, just making it easy for people to access those and maybe apply for them. And then the last thing is pedestrian infrastructure. Um, so West, downtown Weisberg is very dense and it does have that really nice pedestrian scale, but um, connecting through sidewalks is sometimes a bit difficult. So we have this map where it shows the hardest places to access through uh, walking and then um, some of the places where they do have great sidewalks already. So targeting investments in pedestrian infrastructure in those places that maybe aren't as well connected. And then 
using streetscaping as a, a way of increasing public art in the downtown. So um, there's in Madrid, Spain, they have this very artistic crosswalk that is distinct and kind of increases the art artistic nature of the downtown. And then enhancing connections to the trail. So the trail is a great resource and it does go through downtown, but it's kind of difficult to tell exactly how you can connect to the downtown from the trail as it goes through that parking lot. Maybe adding signage or a sidewalk back there um, to make a clearer connection. So here's the Catalyst site that we chose, and we know that uh, we learned recently that there might be some development going on there soon, but it is a pretty interesting site because it is a brownfield site and um, on the historic registry. There are a lot of federal and state resources for that site, and it connects pretty well to the river, so it would be a good way to increase that interaction between the public and the river. So here we just have an idea of what it could be, which is a, <laughs> a deck that goes over and would somehow have public access, or it might be a cafe in the bottom floor. All right, so um, then our alternatives analysis kind of um, shows all these ideas and ranks them based on feasibility and benefits and a list of business-ready sites that um, could just be compiled and put on a website somewhere. Um, that would be pretty easy to do, repainting the crosswalks and improving sidewalks. Uh, but then you get, uh, for the higher cost items and the ones that are more politically, potentially controversial, those are, have lower scores for feasibility. And, and then developing a master plan might be useful because, because then you can kind of plan for future investments and, um, and show grant-giving organizations what your plans are and how they fit together. How did you come up with these scores? Basically, just our perceptions of how they how they are, but they're not scientific in any way, so they're subject to change. Yeah, I can speak to them a, a little bit. It is more about kind of forming a, a basis of comparison. So we have five categories under feasibility. The first, you have to deal with the financial burden, with how much does it cost initially, uh, what's the ongoing cost associated with it, and then kind of some political regulatory hurdles that might exist. Is there, at least from our um, our limited perspective, we're, we're sort of doing this um, as, as an exercise that you all can refine, but also did we think that there was an existing organization in Whitesburg that would be ready to take on a project like this? Um, that was one category, and then finally how much technical expertise would be required. And so for each of our ideas, within, so Catherine was just looking at downtown, so she, she looked at, at all of her ideas and the ones that seemed the most feasible, they were the best option in each category. She gave them a three, which is green, if they were kind of in the middle range, they got yellow, and if they were worse, they got red, which is a one, and so then summing those scores gives the composite score. So there's the feasibility, what it would take to do it, and then also the benefits. And again, we're trying to, to be broad about it, so looking at economic benefits, public health, placemaking, and environmental restoration. Um, one that we think is really important, but we weren't able to adequately reflect in our uh, initial alternatives analysis is just what what the public is most interested in doing. So we wanted to include it both as a way of offering some recommendations, but also as a tool that you all could use going forward. Um, if you wanted to refine the categories, add more, uh, but it's just a, it's a nice way to kind of line alternatives up next to each other and say, okay, what's, what's hardest and, and what are we most excited about? Cool, thank you. Yeah. I really think it's cool, and I can speak of this as a new Weisberg resident. One of the things that I find when 
this area is there's so much misinformation on the internet uh, in terms of businesses. Like for instance, I I was looking up a place to get a haircut, and it was a place with five star rating on Main Street, and it said it had been there for three years and was operating. It was a number, and I called them. They said they moved like two years ago. They were down the street, and having a centralized resource of business ready sites and registered businesses downtown. Yeah. Someone coming in, uh, especially from that newer kind of tourist, but also just new resident uh, perspective, having a centralized resource that's up to date with that. Yeah. Uh, and now that you mentioned that, like um, updating Google Maps would be like, Yeah, there's issue. just so much business, just yeah. not the information that right. that's never been like if you I mean most people the way they interact with uh, you know uh, you know Yellow, Google, and uh, all these traditional sites, uh, there is that sort of uh, anemic. I think typically the Chamber of Commerce would do those sorts of things, uh, and it's very poor here, speaking as a business owner. From a business owner's perspective, the worst thing we see up there is signage. No one knows where to go to park, and then people think there's no parking to get to our business. Mm -hmm. Business ready sites, I'm not sure that there's a lot of those in Whitesburg. Based upon landholders, maybe their non willingness or unwillingness to lease their sites. Mm -hmm. I would say that's more of a challenge than what, okay. what is pictured here. Gotcha. Next up is um, the riverfront. Susan's going to take the lead on that. Whitesburg community has, be, uh, has lack of trust in North Fork, Kentucky River due to the long-standing perception of uh, poor quality of river and also uh, contamination of mining and non-point source pollutions. So um, we decided to approach to this problem with the complementary manners um, by providing goals for improving riverfront qualities and public perception of Northport Kentucky River, creating more opportunities for positive perception and experiences along the riverfront and remediating stormwater erosion and pollution. Um, so I'll speak briefly to our assessment and analysis process for the riverfront. Um, we had a couple of different angles on it. First, we took sort of a broad view and learned a little bit more about the uh, ecological significance of the region um, and how how important um, this uh, mixed mesophytic bioregion is, uh, and offered in the report and also in our database, we have some resources about um, the endangered species and other um, sort of attributes of the area that could help paint a more uh, positive perspective on the river and how, how valuable uh, it is uh, to be conserved. Um, and then we went down to the site scale and we picked two reaches along the riverfront in Whitesburg. One uh, that's pictured uh, in the top left is the river as it kind of wraps around Main Street. Uh, so we looked at that reach and then we also looked at a reach uh, uh, all the way on the other, the eastern side, uh, from the end of the railroad uh, right of way down to Riverview Park. And we used a, a stream assessment methodology where we were looking at the uh, general quality of the riparian zone, what kinds of plants are growing there, how much trash and debris is there, uh, number of stormwater outfalls, conditions of erosion, try to get a, a better picture and then we also took a lot of pictures, uh, one of which is, is there um, to show places where we felt uh, like we saw more significant erosion and, and vegetation uh, issues along, along the riverfront. 
And then finally, uh, again, because we were wanting to focus on the riverfront in Whitesburg, we know that, that Alex is doing great work in the sort of regional watershed, but to look more specifically at what could happen in Whitesburg that could help change uh, perceptions, possibly, for the better, uh, we were looking more at stormwater runoff uh, and how that influences the, the river in Whitesburg. And so in addition to mapping stormwater erosion points, uh, we also took uh, a national data set that it looks at land cover. It's not super fine scale, but it will give you a sense of how developed, uh, what kind of, whether it's vegetated with trees, grass, uh, or different kind, different scales of development for urban areas. And so I did a pretty basic analysis uh, comparing the percentages of different types of land cover in our bright corridor that you all saw earlier, uh, comparing it to Whitesburg, just the whole town boundary, and then Letcher County. Uh, and you know, no surprise, Letcher County has lots of uh, forests, so all that green, that pretty much 75% uh, forest cover in Letcher County strongly contrasts with the Bright Corridor, which uh, everything that is a shade of red down to pale pink is developed land. So you can see that a lot more developed surface area in the Bright Corridor, and so then also using that data generated an idea of how much a typical just one inch of rain falling in the break quarter, how much runoff that would generate, and it came out to about four million gallons of runoff. That's sort of a, a background piece of information just, again, to kind of help shift uh, possibly a public perception that there's nothing that can be done in Whitesburg to address the river health. Uh, stormwater runoff can carry a lot of pollutants and then and, uh, also remove sediment with high velocities, and so since there is this a large amount of impervious surface area and it can cause those issues, taking some steps initially to remedy those is something that can be be done uh, while the other longer term water quality issues are being resolved uh, in the in the region. So those are sort of the different layers that we looked at and now Susan's gonna talk about our recommendations. So our general recommendations were divided into two strategies, which is short-term strategies and long-term strategies. And it was the determining factor was mainly based on time and scale of implementation of those strategies. So um, short-term strategies such as uh, installing light along the riverfront, uh, creating a walking path and enhancement of the aesthetics of the river, extending river stewardship program, and also we noticed a couple of the fishermen fishing in, along the riverfront, but we noticed, we also noticed that they didn't have the proper fishing dock to uh, enjoy their hobby, so maybe building like a very simple and easy fishing dock like that um, along the riverfront can also be uh, one of the public amenities added along the river. Uh, compared to the short-term strategies, long-term strategy, strategies such as built, uh, restoring the adjacent land zones um, as a buffer vegeta vegetated area is like, it requires uh, higher expertise and also longer time to get implemented. It's good for the water quality since it works as a uh, filter for all the pollutants such as nitrogen and phosphorus and sediment uh, for the river. The ideal buffer zone is about 10 to 30 feet wide that can uh, potentially enhance the aquatic habitat and also works for the bank stabilization. There are also a couple of the stormwater pipes projecting several feet into the air that we notice, um, which makes the outflow of the hit the ground to hit the ground with stronger force. So um, we also recommended building some kind of remediation uh, strategies for the stormwater outfalls. If you see the picture above, with like maybe placing rocks along the 
around the stormwater pipe can also be one of them. So our catalyst site was, we call it the West Main Bioswell site. It's a um, largely underutilized site compared to other sites in downtown. It's a city-owned parking lot at, located at the edge of the Main Street in downtown, which is a good existing point for the interaction between downtown and the river. It suffers from stormwater erosion, sediment from coming up from uphill. So we, our design opportunities focus more on retaining the stormwater and also act, uh, make the place to, for a public open space for a, like a recreational open space for the community residents to enjoy the view of the river as well. Visible improvement in a, a site, West Main Bioswale site, can also increase people's awareness, which also functions as a recreational open space and that focuses, uh, that increases the awareness and enhancement of the river perception of the river which also um, works as an educational purpose for the river. Look at this site and a lot of different sites as, as places where you could both filter and create this riparian buffer like Susan was talking about, um, create filter, filtration of, of like runoff from, from up, uphill and downtown, and also like bring folks closer to the river. And so like, uh, some of these are like very expensive retrofits to do, but some are, are much less expensive. There's also a taco truck in there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's hard, hard to see. Maybe you can see it report, but um. I was like, it's all parked. It's all parked. That sounds great. It's gonna happen. Okay. At the other end of Main Street, past the cozy corner. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It would be a perfect spot. There's it and most people don't know it's there. Yeah. There's hardly ever one or two cars there. And, it, and it, it's actually a, a really good place to park if you're going to the heifer, if you're going to the courthouse, all this, and, but nobody uses it. Mm -hmm. Talking with folks, we, we understand that parking is <laughs> sacrosanct. It's very important. But there's opportunities for you know adding a median with some with some grass and, and plants there, um, and you know a couple of sort of widen, widening the grass spots there um, felt like a, a big potential just to like make that more of a site that people want to you know, would want to visit with. Um, and we were really struck by the community college site, right, where the, where the community college comes down the river and then, you know, with some, some hard skating work, you could, you, you could lay that, the approach to the river back, so. Yeah, I'm glad y'all did this too, because, I, I mean, I've, I've heard a lot of people over the last little bit, um, I mean, obviously we've got a lot of water problems that you, um, we know, we've talked to you all about, and as you said, it's a bigger context than just downtown, but I have heard a lot of people recently talk about um, how the riverbank has shifted, um, just um, in terms of erosion. You know, I'm, I'm glad that y'all made some notes about how to help some of the new, and you know, like the health department is one of the places where there's a big new parking lot that it wasn't exactly the same before and has one of those um, drain pipes that is above. Um, so I think it's, I think, you know, it's definitely, it really wouldn't take that much to put a bunch of rocks around it. We, we have more ideas that we generated than we thought we could fit into our report. Um, the first one is a pretty general one, public amenities, that can be a lot of different things and we have some, some more specific visualizations in the report, but, um, just increasing opportunities like uh, like a rock bridge. We talked to Ada about that in her own <laughs> presentation. No ways that people can can be close to the river um, in addition to enjoying the views of it from the trail and other places. Building on the work that Headwaters is doing and giving people some more opportunities to, to do river projects. Maybe that could be incorporated into a, a stormwater bioswale planting or a riparian buffer restoration. Um, 
and, and also increasing, I think signs is kind of a common theme throughout a lot of our suggestions, but for kiosks that could sort of let people know a little bit more about the historical significance of points along the river or the ecological significance and again, just kind of give more cues to, to people about, about, about the river health. We have some case studies that have some rough numbers. It really is a challenge doing this assessment on this broad level is that depending on so like what Marley was saying, you can retrofit a, a parking lot in a lot of different ways if you were going to install permeable pavers that has a lot of benefits and it's really high cost, whereas putting in a rain garden doesn't have as many, and again, like if you were doing a riparian buffer restoration, are you paying someone to come in and do that work, or are you organizing a community volunteer day? And I think that's a really good question. I think breaking it down, when, if some ideas sort of bubble up as things to, to tackle first, then going to the, the budget. Ours is more relative to each other, and kind of looking at the median option, what would be yeah, one of the things that strikes me that perhaps you re maybe the research did or didn't contemplate and may seem strange is that, that like the value of the parking lot here one of the unique things is the value of flat land in particular um, so it's not necessarily a parking lot uh, I mean parking lot is a symptom of the fact that people can't park on slopes so the slope is a problem in the development issue so I wonder how, how much or It'd be interesting to pay a lot of attention to developing on slopes, uh, developing parks and attractions on slopes, because uh, the need for parking space is legitimate, particularly if, if there's going to be development of people in those uh, beautiful structures. I think that's what, I, I'm fairly sure that, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's, that was the architectural project that Bill was down here on, wasn't it, building on slopes? Uh, uh, yeah, when you first came. Yeah. 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 Building low-income housing on, on the sides of mountains. Yeah, pole houses. Yeah. So that's kind of an apple shop's uh, founding that kind of idea. But yeah, that 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 would really interest me if we could consider development of the slopes themselves. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think that's. I think a lot of these ideas would be transferable. Um, riparian buffers can be installed. There's sort of questions of technique then of how you go about the actual building process of what you can access by vehicle and not. But it often raises our costs so much more, though. Yes, but um, the development efforts. Uh, I'm going to talk about the walking trail. Assuming everyone is fairly familiar with it, I think it's about a mile paved stretch that runs from Hazard Road to um, the Farmer's Market site or Veterans Memorial Park. The trail's an interesting piece of this because it has the potential to address two of the priorities in the, the bright, uh, or two of the bright programs priorities, which are uh, mobility, um, and they refer to something called health fields, which is essentially really any means of improving um, health and well-being. Quality open space is one of these. So within our study area, we're considering really a, a fairly small portion of the existing paved trail and as Marley mentioned earlier the extension of the, the rest of the, the rail bed corridor um, essentially to the, the hospital. So for our analysis 
it really came down to site surveying ourselves and then some good stakeholder interviews. We also employed the Kentucky Trail Town Program's methodology um, in identifying their, what they call uh, key connecting elements. From what we've learned, it sounds like that the future of that program is, is a little bit up in the air, but nonetheless, we thought it was valuable to employ that same methodology in, in hopes that we know there's, there's been lots of discussion about the regional network, you know, the great um, trails that are nearby and the potential to connect to those in the future. Um, so I think that's, you know, an important thing just to, to keep in mind even when we're looking at um, a more localized section. And I'd say one of the really interesting things from that is that when we look at some of their, their key elements, which are you know, trailheads, gateways, sort of access to a, a town center, and then nodes, which are points of interest, aside from the fact that this trail at present isn't connected to a, a larger regional trail, it actually meets a lot of the, the criteria for a trail town, um, and I think it's, it's really well positioned in that it runs right through downtown. You know, as a former rail corridor, it's level <laughs> all the way along it, so it's super accessible. It links the downtown with all kinds of important sites, so civic sites, uh, residential neighborhoods, commercial destinations downtown with uh, the schools and um, recreational grounds on uh, the west side of town, you know, there's a lot of a lot of great potential there. Just thinking about the existing piece that's there, the biggest thing that really jumps out is just a real lack of um, sort of visibility and, and definition to it. And I think a big part of that is is just really uh, a lack of uh, wayfinding measures and, and signage in place. So based on our assessment, we identified with a couple overarching goals to improve connections between local destinations and create a sense of place that speaks to Whitesburg, Whitesburg's uh, rich history, cultural, culture, and natural environment. And then the hope is that these measures will encourage um, alternate transportation means and then ultimately enhance health and well-being. So in terms of recommendations, I'd say first and foremost, it really comes down to considering low-cost, easily implementable measures to both define and extend the existing trail. Uh, so these could include implementing wayfinding, interpretive signage. I think public art is a really cool thing to think about here. You guys already have a great diversity and array of, of public art throughout town. And you know, wayfinding measures don't need to always be explicitly signage. Um, I think you could you could use artwork to actually define the trail, sort of create this this sense of place. Another thing we've thought a lot about in recognizing that there are a lot of inherent uh, logistical issues with extending the trail, whether that's you know, issues related to easement negotiation, private parcel. So, you know, with those in mind, I think another thing we've, we've tried to think a lot about is the, these low-hanging fruit, these sort of pop-up tactical urbanism, um, these sort of temporary measures to kind of pilot an idea, test it out, 
the one photo there is is an example of a, a pop-up bike lane that I think that it's literally tape on the ground to, to demarcate this thing using you know planters to delineate um, an area flowers could be provided by you know local florist these types of ideas I think are, uh, are things we've really considered so in terms of the, the catalyst site we looked at for the trail, this is the area we mentioned earlier um, under uh, 5th Street, right, the underpass, which as you can see in that photo and I'm sure know is, um, has some drainage issues and is often uh, pretty soggy. We visited it, we noticed there's a lot of cool graffiti there. It's like it's already uh, a place for sort of more informal artwork. So this seems like a you know, potentially opportune place uh, to incorporate art um, and sort of build off, off that idea. Um, and then also, um, in terms of something that's fairly easily achievable, using materiality to deal with some of the on-site issues. Um, so in this case, um, using a, a boardwalk, at least for, for that one section. You know, first and foremost, the, this idea of wayfinding and signage really sort of rose rose to the fore and I think in terms of the you know the the means required to to achieve it there are a lot of different ways you could you could go about it that would be pretty low cost I think another thing to think about is uh, our ways to incentivize trail use you know we've got the schools that are on on the, the trail uh, just off this path and so I think, um, you know, in, in sort of uh, considering extensions of this trail, you know, who are reaching, that, that's where this, this value in um, sort of reaching additional households and, um, and neighborhoods like Upper Bottom comes in. The, the Farber Park is already good Really? Okay. So cool. it starts like around the public housing, something their second year doing it. Okay. And then oh. you get, if you do it every week, you know, you get like X amount of tokens to use at the farmer's market. Oh, that's uh, awesome. Great. Cool. Sort of long-term goals, I think there's real value in, in making that connection eventually and extending the trail if possible to the hospital and we may encounter issues with private parcels. I think there's uh, alternatives available, whether it's providing alternate routes even that, that bypass bypass those sites. Um, I was just wondering, what are some other examples of pop-up programming? There's a really good one for uh, signage that we've seen, which is sort of started with this kind of walkability movement. And so there's this kind of walk your city, there's a website, they have these kind of ready-made signs that you can you can print out and it's like it's sort of a tool for anyone to use um, print these signs off it says you know this way to such and such destination and you sort of fill in the in the blank some just like kind of instant signage effect that suddenly is is directing people to cool places around around town the next section is brownfields. To my knowledge, brownfields have not been mapped before in, in Whitesburg, so with lots of good help from Ada and Herbie, uh, we attempted the first sort of inventory of, of brownfield sites, which Marley mentioned earlier, but just to reiterate that brownfield sites are sites that have been used in some way where they have 
either a contamination issue or just the maybe a perception of it. It doesn't even actually have to be polluted. Um, and they're omnipresent in every single town in the United States. Uh, and there's some pretty good guides out there to kind of flip around the thinking of a lot of times the, this perception or contamination will, will prevent redevelopment, but really a community can, can actually see these sites as assets because there is a lot of uh, federal uh, and state level uh, and private support for reinvesting in these projects and, and they can present some really really cool site opportunities. So we, because the Bright program focuses on uh, brownfield remediation and, and sort of being a technical assistance program for that, uh, this first flyover view is sort of a mapping and getting some, some materials in place that you all can move forward with. Uh, I don't have a, a comprehensive brownfields program to present to you by any means, but, but I have a map that's not very legible the way it is now, but in the report it is much more legible and based on what the response from, from Ada and Herbie and, and others, um, mapping out different sites and the way they're symbolized here, the colors are not super clear, but the gradations, the lighter colors are the ones that uh, probably something there, we're not sure, all the way up to the dark red, we're like, we're really pretty sure there's an issue going on. But all of these would, would be carried further with the, their protocols to follow with doing your different site assessments and figuring out exactly what contaminants are there because that then will drive what remediation strategies you use. Orange line coming in at the bottom uh, is a stream. It's one of three streams that were marked on the maps as being likely contaminated from mine drainage and other non-point source pollution. So that's a feature of the data database the way it is now. We have both the, the land uses and also the water uh, and wanted to touch a bit more on that in our report just because this report will, will also go to the Environmental Law Institute and they, since they've done more work in, in urban communities, they weren't sure if they were really as familiar with mine drainage pollution. And But uh, we got to go out in, in the county and see some sites and feel like this is something that, again, is, is both a challenge and an opportunity uh, to, to look at how you could address remediating land brownfields, but also uh, looking at some water quality issues in the process. And so one site, first set of analysis for, for looking at brownfields, it seemed like it could present some interesting opportunities for, for looking both at land brownfield sites and stream brownfield sites, is one that's connected to Appleshot property. So across the river, this is the, the Boone building site, um, which has some potential uh, brownfield qualities. Uh, also, this is the, the old uh, water treatment plant, I believe, and then the stream that has been labeled as, as being compromised from, from mine drainage. Uh, and then around those these sites, there's also uh, state-owned property here, uh, and then the old high school building, which and, and another site owned by the Board of Education. So uh, within within this area, you've got a significant amount of land next to a polluted stream uh, that, in the case of the, the old high school, that we understand is the, the remediation and reuse process is starting, and that's a really cool opportunity to partner and bring some brownfield resources there. Uh, but then also just thinking about having a larger area of land uh, opens up the possibility of maybe looking at some passive treatment systems uh, that have been used in lots of different coal field communities. Uh, there's some examples in the report of using different constructed wetlands and, and ponds and taking the water through a series of, 
of different filtration and chemical processes that ultimately clean it. So that's a big topic, and I'm not an expert in it, but just to point out that this is an opportunity uh, that is close to you all. It could be something that could be a large project, but also there's some good statistics about how brownfield redevelopment uh, or, or passive mine redevelopment remediation can be an economic stimulus in its own way because you're bringing in all this grant money that then is kind of recycled in the local economy. So just to see main takeaway that brownfields can be a, a, an asset for the work going forward. My alternatives analysis is, is fairly short just because I didn't dive too deeply into these things, but to emphasize again that projects where, where you all or whoever is involved can collaborate with what's already happening, and the old high school site was one that came to mind, seems like a, a good way forward and, and then just to start uh, building up the, some regional networks, there, there are resources available while you maybe consider larger project ideas. The Brownfield stuff is so hard too because you know um, a lot of the state programs you have to be a new owner of the mm -hmm. property to access mm -hmm. that money and so it, it you know if you own a property for a while and then you find out like if, so for instance one of the places on the map that we identified based on the Brownfield um, definition is the old laundry mat in town mm -hmm. so old laundry mats are considered brownfields mm -hmm. and um, you know so the person who's owned that building for a long time can't get money to repair its building and keep it they have to sell it to someone to you know so it's it's, it's one of the very tricky things about how the public resources because they consider it your you know yeah it's your fault that it's real field or you should have known or whatever and obviously especially someone who you know owned a building with a laundromat they should know but but obviously um, the country's perception of what is toxic and that has changed a lot in 40 years <laughs> Yeah, so last piece of community engagement, you know, we think in the planning world, there's this long history of not talking with communities before you start to redevelop them, and um, it's really obviously problematic. That's also a, a, a sort of story that is we know about in Appalachia, where, you know, folks come from the outside and um, sort of choose the plan and make the plan and, and do a new development, and it's not really what folks wanted or what was best for the community, and so it's important to us, to Apple Shop, that community engagement be part of, you know, sort of front and center as we're, as we take these forward. And so we wanted to make sure that um, we suggest some processes, ways to do that. One thing that, um, you know, worked a long time through, we also started this project hearing about um, CDAC, the Virginia Tech planning program, and sort of some of the tensions that got surfaced from that. And so we wanted to be careful um, a, not to sort of be presenting a plan that, like, here's what people should vote on or not vote on. Yeah, so I think that sort of guided our, our project towards offering a lot of possibilities that Apple Shop could run with, that Whitesburg could run with. We also created a community engagement survey. Uh, it got out pretty late um, and hasn't had very wide distribution. Um, it asks, you know, so it gets at sort of what are residents' interests in growth and development types. What kind of things do folks want to see to improve the quality of life in town? And then each of these sections has a, a piece within the community engagement survey. I think that that, uh, that survey should is, is a, a really useful tool to consider moving forward, and especially to like 
bring into grant proposals, funding proposals, um, evidence of like, this is 70% of Whitesburg residents said that we, ha we don't have adequate medical, just, I'm just the first thing I saw, um, you know, don't have quality schools, we need quality schools, whatever. I think there's, there's a lot of strength in that data. We need to get that survey more broadly distributed um, to, to get usable data. But that's one piece that we put together. And then just three main recommendations that we wanted to put forward. One sort of coming from ELI and the Bright program is to use multi-stakeholder corridor development, multi-year organization. So essentially what, what ELI likes to see is that stakeholders within the corridor are working together in a sort of ongoing way, a multi-stakeholder um, organization to plan development that's based on sort of different stakeholder interests. The other two are a little more like the lower, lower hanging fruit and ones that sort of go along with what we said about the trail and the, um, and the riverfront. So on the top is this sort of mobile toolbox with a map of, of a trail. So this was done in, um, in Queens, um, in New York, but basically it's a you know, map of the, of the trail. To, they're, a, they're trying to design and develop a, a new walking trail and they kind of go along through neighborhoods with this map of the trail and allow people to sort of design the trail themselves um, and envision what what could be there and then you can you kind of take pictures of each of those those um, sessions with residents and use that to sort of compile a final design of the trail that that reflects residents interests thinking about these sort of small ways that we can get people involved in designing the quarter and, and offering suggestions and like saying like no that's not what I want I think this is a better idea is a good way to sort of build up you know momentum towards these bigger things like participatory budgeting or an entire corridor redevelopment master plan. Sort of wraps up that's all of our recommendations. We just wanted to, to wrap it up by sort of situating what we've done uh, within the work that that you all are doing and also within uh, the stages of the Bright program. And so it's not a perfect sequential set of stages, but they outline in their, their documents that you, know, you move from corridor selection to coalition building, classification assessment, and you get into the design and then you get into the, the doing and the monitoring. So that's the, the long view of different stages, or we hope at least, that we've given, given you all some material that can can help move the coalition building forward, the, the classification and assessment piece, um, making use of some of the data that we've put together, and then just really wanted, wanted to open up some design possibilities, not close things off. Are there things here that you think are like really awesome, really good uh, recommendations? Are there ones that are like, no, that's way off base, least favorite, not achievable? What seems easiest to me is doing some of the shorter term stuff, like using, getting with folks like the Dew Mountain Heritage or thinking about Oktoberfest to try out some of like what you're saying with like the pop-up things or doing the homemade signage or whatever and using that as an opportunity where a lot of people are going to be around to do it. I feel like that's a feasible community sort of project. I recently took over the coordinator position for Epicenter Arts, which is based here in Wattsburg, and we are very interested in any kind of walk walkway art. Maybe if we can figure out like a little more direction of where to start with something like that, because we're kind of lost, more just like ideas. You know, like, wow, wouldn't it be cool if we had like multicolored sidewalks or multicolored walkways or 
hand-painted signage by people that live here, you know, Association has talked about that for a long time. That there's some impediments in the way, both from governmental and then private landowner landowners, mm -hmm. and so trying to get that pushed has been a really hard thing. But that also hurts all of downtown because no one knows it exists if you're just driving by. I think the paint, the sidewalk painting, or like the crosswalk painting. I just think there's several places that it is a little unclear where you're supposed to cross. Main Street, and there's not a supposed to anywhere, but I think that would be really fun and definitely a cool project with Epicenter or something. And I mean, I do think and it'd be fun to experiment with the farmer's market too, but the part of the trail that enters where the free parking lot is, I think is just so unclear where the trail is. And mm -hmm. I think what you showed with the bike trails, that whole walk, we got to figure out something, but just there could be easy planners for that part of the walking trail before it gets to the where the incline makes it distinct. So yeah, I think there's a lot of that kind of quick stuff that is exciting in this, but I definitely, I mean, I feel like Appleshop should pay our part. <laughs> um, and then I just, I think this extension of the trail is uh, to me one of the biggest impediments to the bigger prospect. Like I just feel like if we could complete going from that riverfront park walking track to where it's already paid, It'd be so big. It'd be so big. But it's also obviously, I don't feel like money's the issue. I think it's the property ownership. And I think it's possible. It just feel like when I was thinking about this and the more I worked with y'all, the more I was like, well, the very low hanging fruit on that part is Apple Shop Pavement its part. <laughs> you know, like that's the biggest part that we can do. But I would love to get from Apple Shop to Upper Bottom. <laughs> It'd be a big deal. I feel like this basically carved off six months of someone's job, literally just to get all the information in one place about the historic district, about the zoning, about the park. I mean, like, it just, I mean, you all know what you did the work of, like, how just, like, disjointed all that stuff was and no one had it and so like y'all are gonna like hand us a hard drive that has that all and we'll hand it to the city who hopefully will have a position to run with it. The city passed an occupational tax like four or five years ago I think um, something like that but that's a generated revenue stream now and it's really important for the city but they they've had a bunch of stuff they've had to pay off because they weren't in the best position and so I mean I just think there's a lot of possibility coming um, and we've just been on the kind of how do you get your ducks in a row to be ready for that um, and so this is super super helpful. You know when we get to the history you mentioned our town's rich history I think of if tourism is the background comment to that statement let's say there's Smithville Virginia that has a beautiful history right it's not the history of the changing of the world in some substantial way, but it's a beautiful, nice history. I don't know that it draws a great number of people to see its uh, history. Some great places with great history, but people go to places where the things are going on. And I remember going to this small little town in Italy. I don't, I don't remember the name of it because it's a small town, but it was just painted. And it was in my travel book because it was painted, right? And then you go there and it's painted. And by painted, I don't mean painted in a normal way, I mean painted. Colors, flowers, butterflies, you know, dragons. The whole town is just painted. 
just like an artist just, you know. What was happening is that artists were doing it all the time. It was part of their culture, it was part of their community. People felt free to paint. And so it drew a ton of people that would go to this part of Italy, would have to go see this painted town. And of course they had coffee shops. And it's sort of a build it, they come piece. Uh, we happen to have an artistic organization here. There's a missing connection between the city and us. Some, there may be reasons that that's happened in the past. Maybe those reasons are changing, uh, maybe they're not. That's a low-hanging fruit. And we've had many interactions uh, with the city. It's just a particular visual art way. I mean, we have some murals and things like that, but we could have a painted city. I think our city is painted culturally with Apple Shops products across our media forms, just not visually, but I think that could draw people. Uh, the history alone piece doesn't excite me at all. I, that's something I think many places like us fall back on, uh, areas like every place has got history. I mean, mm -hmm. what doesn't? I mean, what place doesn't have culture? But we, we may section off one particular part of things and from one particular 10-year section and call it tradition. Significant. Yeah, sure. Yeah, but it will change by the time you and I are old. I'm really interested. Whitesburg has an, has an odd amount of community art compared to part of eastern Kentucky I come from which I guess people here would even consider Eastern Kentucky, I don't know, doesn't have public art that I can think of. I don't, can't think of any statue or anything like that, but there's stuff all over the place here. And I'd like to see more of that, I think it could be, I think that could be a really unique advantage for us. And there are parts of Kentucky that are like that. I mean, Asheville's a pretty city, and a lot of public art and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm interested in every element of our development that would further integrate. I think the whole city should be painted. I think that's beautiful. I always found it odd when we moved here, because we moved here a couple of years ago from Lexington, and Lexington is in this whole process of trying to dig up Town Branch to create a river. Oh, yeah. And Whitesburg is sitting on a river and doesn't even use it for a public attraction at all. Like, there's River Park, but I don't know very many people that go out there. And the river runs through downtown so much. But there's nothing. There's river, the river trail, but as to integrating the river into people's lives and creating a focal point and an attraction, it just doesn't hurt. Yeah, and, it, and it's one of the things I know, um, um, and I don't know how you would feel like, Tom, but I feel like, at least to me, I've always um, been told the river is nasty. And it is nasty. <laughs> and so, you know, I feel like that's part of the heart. Like, and when I talk I to the quality standpoint, yeah, but from a no, visual standpoint, yes, from a visual standpoint, it is. But I'm, I'm just, I'm just saying that um, I, when I was talking to the bright guy, um, you know, way before we got UVA involved, et cetera, I was telling him like, yeah, I think we have some brownfields, but really the river is a brownfield, and it runs all the way through town. This is where the hard part of streams come in is they don't like start on one mile and end at the end of the mile you know and, and that's what i think uh, the social perception that is real <laughs> it's not a mistake it's not like people think the river is bad just because of some past thing but then i also do agree there are plenty of beautiful spots to sit and look at the river. yeah i mean there's some that aren't though still like i live across from that empty building by aclc i have one of the balconies and every time after a heavy rain, like that water goes down and you're just left with tons of, I mean, that whole trash. bank is just covered in trash. And that's right off, you know, that's where the guy fishes with his bow off the bridge there. And you all did uh, so much work helping out us in the city. Appreciate that. And thank you so much for all the work you've done and, and this presentation. It's been uh, very helpful and uh, very, very appreciative. Thank you for your time. And that concludes this edition of Mountain Talk Monday. 
I've been your host, Kelly Haywood. Making Connections is brought to you by WMMT Mountain Community Radio. Find out more at makingconnectionsnews.org.